Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is How to Citizen with Baratunde. In season two, we're talking about the money. Because to be real, it's hard to citizen when we can barely pay the bills. A few years ago, I got a Facebook message from someone claiming to be my cousin. She had seen me on television and found me on the internet. Now, when you're on television, a lot of people claim to be your cousin. So I was a little bit suspicious, but we met up uh, in a safe public place. And she indeed was my cousin. She had photos. I had vague memories. They definitely weren't doctored. She was on my father's side of the family. 
people I hadn't seen since his death when I was a very young child. My cousin revealed to me that my father's mother was still alive. That would make her my only living grandparent. I was so used to just me and my older sister being the whole family. The idea of a few generations separated, that was a big deal. So I met up with my grandmother. Of course, I asked a lot of questions about my father. And then I caught myself. And I said, I said, ask this 90-something-year-old black woman about herself, her journey, her childhood. When were you born? Where did you grow up, Grandma? 1920s Orangeburg, South Carolina. Did you go to school? I asked her. Oh, yeah, we went to school. Where'd you live? On my daddy's farm. All six of us kids. And we were proud because he owned his own farm. He wasn't a sharecropper. He actually owned his farm. What was that like? And what was school like? And she told me that every year, all the kids would have to gather the farm. Not just her daddy's farm, but the farms of other white residents in the area. And naive me, I thought, oh, maybe this is like a jobs program. All the kids have to do this. I don't know what life in the 1920s and 30s was like. But no, that was too simple, too naive, too innocent. She and her siblings had to work for free on the farms of white residents in that area. Because her father needed to get credit extended by shop owners in the main shopping district. They couldn't make everything they needed. You had to buy stuff and people use credit. But as a condition of extending him credit, those shopkeepers demanded and were able to get the free labor of his children. That I was not prepared for. And it made me angry. Because not only was my grandmother's labor exploited, her childhood was exploited. She was taken out of school, another cost to be paid by only some people in America. My grandmother had to work for free, had to miss out on literal educational opportunities. She left Orangeburg with her husband pretty much as soon as she could. It's why I grew up in Washington, D.C. Doesn't own that land anymore either. Today's Wealth inequality may not look exactly the same as it did in 1920s and 1930 South Carolina, but we still live with it. And it's not a vague thing. Oh, wealth inequality. It's an academic thing to study. No, it's, it's real. And it exists along racial lines. The rich tend to be whiter. The poor tend to be blacker. And that is not a mistake. That's by design. Where does that come from? I wanted to find out. They closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department. They sold off the animals in the zoo, all to avoid sharing it with Black folks. We're spending this entire season looking at the division rooted in wealth inequality in this country. And of course, like we always do, what we can do about it. But to do something about it, we've got to understand it. After the break, my guest Heather McGee breaks down the driving force of American economic exclusion via the swimming pool. 
There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is happening. 
<laughs> What's up? Hi, sweetheart. It's very good to be with you. Good to be with you. My guest, Heather McGee, is the former president of the anti-racist advocacy organization, Demos. She traveled all over the United States to see for herself the economic impact racism was having on all Americans and to write her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Simple question. Can you introduce yourself and what you do? My name is Heather McGee. I am the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And that's all you need to know about me anymore. I'm just a writer, you know? That's all I am. I wander the country <laughs> collecting stories. You know we have, like, typing machines now, right? Like, you don't have to do it so old <laughs> school. <laughs> what, what were you before you were just a writer? I was a policy wonk. Uh, for about 20 years, I helped to build, and then I was the president of Demos, which advanced and designed solutions to inequality. You know, for me, my ultimate goal was to try to make more economic opportunity for more people and to have more justice for all. Well, how'd you first get interested in the economy? You know, I, I can't unscramble that egg very well, and I'm really bad at my own origin story, but... I was born on the south side of Chicago in 1980. Well, I remember seeing evictions and plant closures and the various things that were going on. The new figures show unemployment spreading, leaving 9.9 million Americans without jobs. Alert sends laborers out by station wagon to perform hundreds of evictions for the county each year. With members of my family losing jobs and being foreclosed on and all of that and and I was raised by a single mother, and I saw the demonization of, of Black, particularly single moms, in the 90s under the welfare reform debate. It just felt like the kind of dominant narrative for why, you know, the sort of deservingness question around the economy, like the bootstraps narrative, the idea that basically people were poor because of bad decisions was really false. It didn't fit, didn't add up, you know, so I... I was always interested in the big why. What is this bootstrap narrative? It's the idea, basically, that the people who are doing well economically are doing so because they're simply better than everybody else. And that if you are struggling, if you find yourself broke, it's probably because of some bad decisions that you made. It's a very individualistic way of seeing the world. And I've since learned that narrative is itself really racialized, right? It's that idea that there's just such a, a hierarchy of human value and human worth. And that othering, that distancing is made very easy by the illusion of racial difference. So you're coming up in the 80s in Chicago and you're hearing this narrative, this bootstrap narrative of deservedness, but you said it didn't add up. So yeah. what was the conflict? What didn't square? Well, it just felt like the people I knew who worked the hardest were those single moms. You know, my mama was always working and she was always working in the community with other usually black single moms who were, you know, making a way out of no way. The more I learned that the things that 
people often think of as choices. Am I able to continue to going to school, to college, or do I have to drop out in order to feed my family? Am I able to stay at home with my newborn or do I have to go back to work? Am I able to buy a house or am I always going to rent? These are all things that are often interpreted by individuals as individual choices, but the terms of them are really set at the policy level. And Mm. so for me, when I first started to really see that and understand that is that there are laws and policies and decisions that are made by powerful actors that close or open doors to individuals along the path of their life, it was a big aha. It was a big like, okay, now now we're talking. Like, this is how we can really make life a little bit sweeter for more people. So you described this realization that the choices available are determined by policies that other Mm -hmm. people make. Do you remember an early moment where you're like, oh, that policy creates the set of choices people have to select from? I mean, I think during the welfare reform debate, which centered often around single mothers, there was a lot that was discussed in the politics of it about encouraging work. Welfare to work. Welfare is not a lifestyle. There's there's sound clips of Bill Clinton out there. We don't want to make this a lifestyle. What we are trying to do today is to overcome the flaws of the welfare system for the people who are trapped on it. From now on, our nation's answer to this great social challenge will no longer be a never-ending cycle of welfare. It will be the dignity, the power, and the ethic of work. Yeah, which, you know, when it was clear that if you could find a job, it wasn't actually going to, nothing, none of the options were going to pay enough for somebody to actually not be poor anymore. Welfare kept you basically poor. A minimum wage job kept you poor. The ability to work your way into the middle class had long disappeared. When you say that the, uh, so the pathway to the middle class was closed. When, why did that happen? Well, this is the story that I then learned once I started working at Demos when I was 22. And I was the first hire, other than the director of the program, in the economic opportunity program. And Mm. this was phenomenal. This was my dream job. So it was then that I really learned kind of the progressive economic orthodoxy, which teaches that there was a period of dramatic expansion of the middle class. Hunger drove our people to the bread lines. Anxiously, we waited, waited for some sign of better days. Then came the federal government's work program. One by one, it took... Where, you know, tens of millions of people made it from the working class into the middle class through this massive economic expansion in in security, you know, through the New Deal, through social securities, through the subsidization of housing. There were guaranteed benefit pensions. We had these state-funded colleges in every state where the government picked up the tab for college. Hundreds of homes have been freed from the bondage of poverty as their breadwinners find security and hope in their new jobs. It was just sort of this period of time where everything kind of aligned to make the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. 
it sounds like the American dream. It sounds like the American dream. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. That's it. That was it. That was when we had it, you know? And But the question is, who was the we? So much of what I just described was done from a federal policy level in an explicitly racially exclusive way. Both Social Security and the labor standards excluded the categories that Black folks mostly worked in, uh, agriculture and domestic work. The GI Bill excluded millions of, of Black veterans because of segregation in higher education. And so each of these ways that the middle class was subsidized, that we had handouts and free stuff for white people in the early 20th century created uh, the American dream and on racially exclusive terms. And then the civil rights movement basically called the question, said, okay, are we going to live up to our ideals? And economically, this is where the story that's at the heart of my book, The Some of Us, comes in. It was, in addition to all those great freebies, there was also uh, this building boom of public amenities like parks and libraries and schools and actually swimming pools. And what happened when many of these swimming pools that were segregated or for whites only were forced to integrate and Black families said, hey, those are our tax dollars creating this so-called public swimming pool. And these are these grand resort style pools, like thousands of swimmers. They were desegregated and Black people showed up and white people hung out with them and they swam together and they played together and they lived happily ever after. And they made babies. <laughs> and that's why there's no there's no race anymore, <laughs> because in the 1950s, the swimming pool created all of these mixed marriages. Well, so so obviously that's more of an American fantasy would describe it. What actually happened? <laughs> What actually happened was that in town after town, and it's very important to me to point out, not just in the Jim Crow South, but in Ohio and Washington State and New Jersey, the towns drained the public pools rather than integrate them. And you mean literally like took the water out? Literally took the water out, backed up trucks of dirt, dumped it in, paved it over, seeded it with grass. In Montgomery, Alabama, where I went on the journey to write The Some of Us, They closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department. They sold off the animals in the zoo. And they kept the Parks and Recreation Department of Montgomery closed for a decade. All to avoid sharing it with Black folks. The idea that, what's the saying? You would uh, cut off your nose to spite your face. That you would not only deny Black people access to the free goodies that everybody's tax dollars are paying for, Mm -hmm. but that you would, I mean, (laughs) you cancel the public park, you cancel the swimming pool for all the children and all the families. In your research, did you find any resistance to that extreme resistance? Was somebody out there like, um, actually, look, maybe we could just timeshare? I mean, what (laughs) do we literally have to fill the pool with concrete? That's that's pretty far. Um, there was. I mean, as always throughout history, there have been the race traders, right? There have been white folks who said no, you know, <laughs> who have stood up and stood in solidarity with Black folks. There are white folks who didn't want to stand in solidarity with Black folks, but were just upset because the pool was gone. But what happened, and this has really been 
very similar to the loss of public benefits throughout our society, right? Like take, take public colleges. What is once a public good becomes a private luxury. And mm-hmm. so then you get this rat race, right? Then it's like, okay, you have that individualized response, right? Let me take another job. Let me mortgage my house. Let me refi, you know, let me, let me figure it out on my own. Yeah. And that's been the sort of slow you know, ratcheting down of our expectations of what the public could do for us. And we put it all on our own shoulders. And so literally with the pool story, what ended up happening is you saw this advent of backyard pools. In the Washington, D.C. area, you had, after pool integration, over 100 private members-only swim clubs that sprang up out of nowhere. Mm. And so, sure, you could pay a few hundred dollars a year for your kid to swim. Used to be free. Okay, all right, we'll keep it moving. I'll make more money. So you're you're privatizing public goods and yes. limiting access to those who can afford it, which is public policy connected to your economics. Mm-hmm. Look at you, professor. Okay. <laughs> so so tell me this though. I'm trying to flash back to this desegregating America, and I'm trying to put myself inside of the mind and body of a white American who's like, the black people are coming. No, we got to shut down these pools. But do they have enough discipline and savvy to explain it in a way that doesn't say, we just don't want to share this with Black people? No, the pools are pretty clear. I tried, I mean, I, you saw me. I tried no. to help them out. I was like, they, come on. They must have had some kind of story, some some kind of BS. Sell it. No. I mean, so in St. Louis possibly the largest pool in America at the time, the first day of the integrated swimming there, there was a mob of 200 white folks who came and beat every Black person in sight. I later saw an interview with one of the white guys who ended up in the hospital from the melee. And he later on would say, you know, in his elder years, he would say, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, they were taught. This is the thing. They were taught by our government, by their church, by all of the rules of society that we were so unclean and unworthy that we should not be allowed to swim with them, go to school with them, drink from the same water fountain as them, walk on the sidewalk next to them. I mean, you know, and what do you take from all of that information is that there's something terribly wrong with these people. And so we must guard what is ours from the incursion of them into it. Us and them. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got this book. Mm. It's called The Sum of Us. Tell me more about this book. (sighs) So The Sum of Us is my attempt, after nearly 20 years working in economic policy, trying to get the right data in the hands of policymakers, and mostly finding it to be far too difficult to convince the people in power to do the thing that was obviously in the economic interest of most people and in the interest of economic growth in our country. So you say you're proposing these policies that are obviously, in the benefit of most people, and economic growth. So Mm -hmm. that, to me, sounds like one of those win-win situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why was it hard to sell these ideas? Racism. (laughs) 
Dang it. <laughs> not again. Um, no, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but I'm yeah. not really joking. Um, that's what I wanted to find out, right? Okay. The first line in my book is, have you ever wondered why we can't seem to have nice things? And by nice things, I really do mean like really universal health care, a modern world-class or even just reliable infrastructure, a public health system to, to contain and handle pandemics and save lives. And it was clear that kind of the tools that I had been using, you know, the economic policy research, the legislative drafting and the congressional testimony and all of that was basically falling on deaf ears and inequality was getting wider and wider every year. I just felt like I needed to spend some time to figure out what was really going on underneath the surface. And what I ended up finding was that the biggest impediment to our progress in America, the reason why we can't have those nice things, is that there's this zero-sum worldview, this idea that there's an us and a them. We're not actually all on the same team. And that, in fact, progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. And I say that because white people are much more likely to have this zero-sum worldview. Black folks don't believe that progress for us has to come at white folks' expense. And it's that zero-sum worldview that has led many white folks, in fact, the majority since the civil rights movement, to politically sort of cheer the destruction of and resent the provision of public goods that could help them and their families in many instances because it could help the people on the other team. After the break, how this us versus them mentality got started and how we can undo it. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. 
That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. So Heather, what I'm hearing from you is that at least since the civil rights movement, white Americans have been opposing policies that would make life better for them because those same policies would also benefit black people. Is there something unique about this white American response or is that just human nature? Such a good question. And I wanted to know, right? Because on the one hand, if it, if it is just human nature, if it's like, oh, well, we're just tribal, you know, that's who we are, we're competitive by nature. And I was like, okay, well, then I give up, you know, <laughs> we'll figure out some other route, you know. Um, but the fact that this was a view held more by white Americans and less by Americans of color, and that white people in Denmark and France and England and Spain didn't feel the same way, mm-hmm. right? They love their public goods. It felt like, okay, I got to get to the to the bottom of this. And that's why the the first thing I did was kind of immerse myself in an unvarnished history of the country through that lens. Okay, where did the zero-sum story come from? And so looking back at our history, the zero-sum was an essential foundation for the economic structure of our country at the beginning, mm. where our original economic model was stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor. And in order to justify that within a Christian society, they had to make those people who were being stolen less than human. And therefore, they had to create this racial hierarchy, this racial taxonomy. 
And the model was I profit, you lose. You don't get to share any of the gains of your land, your effort, your labor, nothing. Slavery and settler colonialism is about as zero sum as it comes. Yeah. But even then, and this was the real like aha for me, I had to admit that actually that worst possible economic model only truly maximally benefited a narrow elite back then of white people. Mm. And so that white slave-owning, land-owning elite had to convince the far more numerous landless, indentured white folks who were sitting there in the you know rocky fields alongside the Black folks that they were better than the person down, down the row <laughs> and that, in fact, justice or freedom for Black folks would be a threat to white folks period. Ye old divide and conquer. Ye old <laughs> divide and conquer. So that's where it came from. That's, and then it's been reanimated yeah. generation after generation, yeah. this idea of job competition, giving white folks, everyday white folks, just enough taste of privilege that they could choose their race over their class. Mm. That's a pretty convincing story, backed up by a few centuries now. A storytelling. That's right. So tell me about the traveling you did while you were researching and writing this book. So I, I talked to a whole bunch of people. So I went, for example, to Mississippi, hmm. where the workers at a car factory had just voted against organizing into a union with the United Auto Workers. Nissan is unable to provide decent wages and decent working conditions here in Canton, Mississippi. And for me, growing up in the Midwest, where those kinds of jobs, those unionized manufacturing jobs were the best jobs, I was like, okay, why would anybody vote no to having that kind of power? So I wanted to go down and sit with folks. And so I flew and then I drove to a... Um, a kind of nondescript worker center in a strip mall, which was the place where the pro-union workers would kind of meet before their shift and hang out and talk in between shifts. And I sat in the lobby with them over a series of days and just talked to them about the conditions of the plant, the lives that they led, what they hoped for, what they had hoped that unionizing would bring them. And race was always the topic of the conversation. So we had far more Black workers than white workers who had been supportive of the union. And they were clear to me that the word union itself was kind of a dog whistle in the South for something that lazy, undeserving Black folks needed. As this one guy, Joey, said to me, white guy with a sleeve of tattoos and cut off sleeve shirt, said, the white folks down here, they got their Southern mentality. I ain't voting for it if the Blacks are for it. If the Blacks are for it, then I'm against it. Like, that is the mentality. They talked about the way that white folks did have an advantage in the plant as it was, that there was a real ladder of hierarchy and that the white folks were much more likely to have what they called the cushier jobs. This one guy said, you can tell they're cush because they can leave work and go straight to the happy hour. They don't have to go home and shower, right? And so it was those kinds of little perks, right? The little advantages of whiteness. And honestly, after the first day, I went back to my hotel room and I was like, 
well, maybe white folks are right. Like maybe this is better for them than having a union with rules that are going to put them on the same level, right? Um, And then I had to remind myself, right, but nobody has good health care. Nobody has job security. Nobody has the things that should really matter, things that could actually transform your life. It's like two people in a cold room. One's got a coat, one doesn't. But if they just sort of joined together and like shouldered open the door, then walked out into the sun where it's 70 degrees, they'd both be good, you know? But it's the boss that keeps them in the cold room, Mm. right? And keeps that sense of, I'm gonna have a little bit of advantage over what is generally speaking, a crappy system. And I'm gonna cling to that advantage rather than opening my hand and joining forces with somebody I've been taught to disdain and distrust, even if both of our lives will be better. White folks have been taught that if there is a risk in society, they're going to be protected from it. And the burdens are going to fall on the people that the burdens always fall on. Now, that is both true when it comes to pollution and environmental degradation and and the vulnerability of when lights go out and the power goes out and the pandemic arrives, right? Those disparities will exist. It's not like white people are completely spared. So it is an illusion, just like race is an illusion, just like this racial hierarchy is an illusion, but it's one that is present enough to have them like hedging their bets a little bit. But it's the toll is is mounting, right? I mean, before the pandemic unplugged our economy and threw millions of people out of work, nearly half of adult workers were only making $10 an hour or $18,000 a year on average. They were low-wage workers, right? This this economy that sort of, where the rules are, are rigged to squeeze down and down and down is the economy that Black and brown folks have always known. It was the economy that was created for us to live in. And now many more white people are living in it too because they've so cast their lot with a sense of racial allegiance to a white elite. Uh, I want to talk about something that we hear a lot about. Let's talk about wealth inequality. What is wealth inequality and why do you care about it? Why should we care about it? Isn't it a feature of societies since time immemorial? You got rich people, you got poor people. What's the big Mm -hmm. deal? So wealth, as opposed to income, income is your paycheck, right? Wealth is how much money you have in the bank, no matter what paycheck is coming in or not. It's in your savings account. It's about the value of your house. It's about a pension or a 401k you might have or an IRA. It's about the things that don't come and go with how much effort you put in. It's just the shit you have. (laughs) And that is where history shows up in your wallet. It's was your family there in line with the right color skin at the time when the government was still handing out houses with no down payment, right? Was your family in line when they were handing out jobs that were unionized that had a pension? Were you in line when they were handing out debt-free college? Or were you born into a family that was excluded from all that by design? So when we talk about wealth inequality, we are talking about the people who make their money by opening an envelope 
that comes from their stockbroker versus the people who make money going into a job. Like that's a whole different level, right? Mm-hmm. And there are many people whose money just sits there and makes money. And it has nothing to do with how tired they get in a day. So your money works rather than you working. Thank you. Exactly. So the richest 1% owns more than the entire middle class combined today. Then you look at race, and that's where you start to bring it down to the sort of real brass tax level, where the average family headed by a white high school dropout has more wealth than the average Black family headed by a college graduate. So that doesn't that doesn't sound right. So I'm going to need you to double check your math on that because uh, that doesn't sound very American. Uh, so just, just try try one more time. Just all right. Let me let's let's do a quick calculation. Yeah. The average household headed by a white high school dropout has about thirty four thousand dollars in average wealth. For a household headed by a Black college graduate, the average wealth is less than $30,000. So what that means is that individual myth of the thing that is holding Black folks back now is a lack of education, a lack of income, a lack of what the nice economists call human capital is largely false. And it's really about whether or not you were the right, at the right place in the right time in history with the right skin color to get free stuff that then begets more and more free stuff. Your money creates money. If you've got house and home equity, then you can borrow against that to pay for college tuition. Then your kid doesn't have to go into debt, then they can graduate and take an unpaid internship or spend six months working at a startup that doesn't pay them. Your biggest takeaways from your journey putting this book together? The thing that my journey to write the book taught me is that race and racism is always there. It's always there in our politics and our policymaking, even when we don't think it is. And the zero-sum racial hierarchy is a tale as old as time, and yet we have come to the moral and productive end of it. And we've got to start replacing it with the solidarity dividend where we refill the pool of public goods for everyone. But we recognize that because of racist policymaking, we're not all standing at the same depths in that drained pool. Some people are underwater completely. Some people are treading water. And so one size is never going to fit all, never has, never will. And that we need each other. We are on the same team. What is the solidarity dividend? Solidarity dividends are the gains that we can unlock, but only if we work together across lines of race. The things that we all need that we simply can't do on our own. Cleaner air, higher wages, better funded schools. But as long as we're divided, we're not going to do that. What signs are you seeing that we can climb out of this hole? Because as much as I try to be motivational, inspirational, and honest, the honest part of me is like, I don't know, man. This racial narrative story, it's it's been on a run. This is the series that always gets renewed and people keep watching. So what's the other story? What's the other show? 
So the pessimistic story is January 6th, right? Is we have had a white supremacist, anti-democratic attempt to siege the Capitol and lynch our elected representatives to throw out the results of an election. Something we have not seen since Reconstruction and something in terms of in the national capital, we have never seen. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. That's pretty, pretty exhibit A of exactly the stakes of this racial narrative of the desire to burn down the edifice of our democracy rather than have it be a multiracial democracy. But the reason for hope is January 5th, is the day that came before. When in Georgia, say it again. In Georgia, a multiracial, anti-racist coalition got together, got in formation behind Stacey Abrams and the successor to Martin Luther King's church and a nice white Jewish guy <laughs> said, we're marching to Washington. Let freedom ring. Uh, NBC News uh, now projecting that John Ossoff, the Democrat, uh, will win the Senate runoff in the state of Georgia. Now projects Raphael Warnock as the winner. The 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you know, we are talking right now after President Joe Biden signed a bill that is poised to cut child poverty in half. Historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country. That is the biggest grant to indigenous communities in our history. That is going to include money for vaccines and reopening schools and to address homelessness and affordable housing and school lunches and giving families $300 a month to make sure that they don't have to choose between feeding their kids and, and keeping the lights on. How do you tell a white person not just to like help we the black people, but like there's something in this for you? Mm -hmm. This country tells the story of how great we are. We went to the moon. We defeated the Nazis. We did. We created, you know, uh, wet naps. You know, like we've done a lot of a lot of powerful things. And I'm like, guess what? We did all that with most of the players, like not mm -hmm. on the field. We might have been to Mars by now if we let women have their own bank accounts. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. We could have created that much more wealth. So right. when you think about what a healthy economy looks like mm -hmm. and the connection to racial equity or equality, mm -hmm. how do you think about that story? What is in it? for the sum of us when we grant access to an opportunity to all of us. That's exactly right. I mean, that is a case for reparations. Remember, the white high school dropout has more wealth than the black college educated person. We got a wealth issue to work out with here. Um, but we do have to recognize that the conversation about reparations is going to be heard in that zero-sum framework, right? It's going to be, well, what's the cost out of my pocket? Why are you giving money to them? Mm -hmm. What about me? Black lives matter. What about white lives? But the way I see it is we hit on the formula in the United States for the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, the most prosperous economy of the modern era. 
and the foundations of that were investing in ordinary folks and giving them the cushion to be able to meet their needs and fulfill their dreams. And then the majority of white folks turned their back on that formula because it was expanded to black folks. And if we were to actually say that the government that made the policies to strip wealth, to enslave, all of that, the government is the one that owes black America, not white people have to cut a check to their nearest black neighbor, you know. It is the government that needs to give black families something so that there is that cushion and that platform for them, for us to build our dreams. And that you can't look at the 13 to one racial wealth divide, so much of which is about inherited wealth and not see that if we did reparations, it will be seed capital for the America that is becoming. That's what I see reparations as. It's investing in our people and our future again. Hmm. Reparations, it's Mm -hmm. not a giveaway, it's an investment. Heather McGee. Yeah. It has been a pleasure. Thank you (laughs) so, so much. (laughs) Thank you, Baratunde. Thank you for this beautiful, beautiful podcast. As you might be able to tell, I really enjoyed that conversation with Heather. Our economy is based on exclusion, historically speaking, and in the present. And this is not an intellectual point. This is, this is real stuff here. It actually matters. And when we think about what the alternative is to build an economy built on inclusion and participation, something more small-D democratic, we have to leave that zero-sum mentality that I'm here to take your stuff or that charitable mentality we got to help these poor black people get ahead and catch up no we've got to help ourselves by benefiting from the contributions when everybody participates that's how we win that's how we do better we do it together so how do we get that how do we build that economy that participatory more democratic economy where we benefit from everybody's participation rather than fearing it. The good news is, you know we're going to go there. That's what we do here. Next week, we're going to talk to someone for whom inclusion is not a charitable effort. It's just smart business. So many sort of quote-unquote social enterprises are frankly stupid. I don't like this idea that there's one group of customers that you sell to and there's another group of customers that you do charity for. Next week, we talk to Sam Polk of Every Table. Now for the fun part, where we give you things you can do to citizen better. I want you to think first. That's the first action. Just think. Just try to remember where your family fits into this story. Our history is deeply rooted in this idea that when one group gains, another group has to lose. Has anyone you know, has anyone in your family expressed those ideas? Where do you think that comes from? Why do you think this person expressed those things? Just think about it. It's that simple. The next thing I want you to do is read Heather McGee's book. 
Check it out from your local library, take it off the reserve list, or support a local bookshop. In fact, we've set up bookshop.org slash howtocitizen with a bunch of books, including Heather's, that we think will help us all in this journey. And finally, I want you to do something a little more public that shows what a solidarity dividend might actually feel like. Let's fight for 15. As Heather explained, these solidarity dividends are the gains we get when we work together across racial divides for the benefit of us all. Fight for 15 is an international movement for workers' rights and a $15 minimum wage. The website is fightfor15.org, and there are several ways for you to get involved. Pick one. If you take any of these actions, please brag about yourself online using the hashtag HowToCitizen. And send us general feedback or ideas for the show to comments at HowToCitizen.com. Speaking of that domain name, visit HowToCitizen.com to sign up for our newsletter or learn about upcoming events. And if you like the show, spread the word. Tell somebody. If you don't, definitely just keep it to yourself. Appreciate you. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Dustlight Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, Elizabeth Stewart, and Misha Youssef. Our producers are Stephanie Cohn and Allie Kiltz. Kelly Prime is our editor. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. And Sam Paulson is our apprentice. Original music by Andrew Epen. This episode was produced and sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind. So you can look and feel amazing, no matter the day, season, or occasion. At bostonproper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. 
Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper, wear it like no one else. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.